We're looking at Luke chapter 20, just a, a few verses here, starting in verse 19. And uh, this is God's word to us, his children. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him, on Jesus, that is, at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, uh, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able, in the presence of the people, to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we ask that you'd be our teacher. And as we see Jesus' wisdom in this passage, as he tells us, how to live, um, uh, t- teaching these disciples and these, uh, these uh, people, religious people in his culture, how to live in, in, a, in a pagan society in the Roman Empire. Help us to learn uh, how to live in our culture here. And we pray that you'd be our teacher, that you'd guide us, that you would uh, make us into a church that uh, lives by the wisdom of Jesus that he teaches us in these passage, passages. So I pray that your spirit would take your perfect word, and through me, a fallible, imperfect teacher, that you would apply these words to the lives of those who sit here by your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, we're talking this morning about a topic I, which I think personally think is very important. It's a topic that uh, I've thought quite a lot about in getting ready to plant a church like this, uh, moving to a place like Bellingham. And I think actually is a topic for us as we are called to be Jesus' disciples in a place like Bellingham or Whatcom County, um, a topic that if we're really going to be doing the, the mission that Jesus is call, calling us to, it's a topic that we need to think deeply about, and that's the topic of culture. How do we, uh, as Christians, as a church, what is our stance? What, how, do, how do we look at, how do we view the culture that we're living in, where we're living in a culture uh, that largely doesn't believe, doesn't see the world the, the way we see it. What is our stance towards our neighbors, uh, the businesses, the institutions around us that may, oftentimes are hostile to Christians, don't uh, think that Christians are, are stupid or ridiculous or, or emotional, and don't take Christians seriously? What is our stance towards a, a culture that's surrounding us? And uh, I think that's a big question for us, you know, especially living in the Pacific Northwest. Um, uh, I, Roughly, I've heard different statistics on, on the percentage of Christians in Whatcom County. On the high end is, is roughly 25%. Probably 25% would t- name themselves as Christians. And people who are actually Christians that actually love Jesus and are following him, I, I've heard as low as 8%. Um, and uh, either way, we're, looking at, we're living in a, in a culture that the, the vast majority of the people um, would not associate themselves with Christians or Jesus or saying that they believe in, in the Bible or, or that they follow Jesus. And actually, there was a, a study uh, in, I think, 2005 that was done that looked at all the regions of the United States 
and uh, looked at the, the role of religion in each of those regions. The Pacific Northwest got the name as the Nun Zone. So it, it is the, the, the uh, region of the country that has the largest majority of people who say they have no association with any uh, kind of religious institution or religious belief. So, um, uh, and, you know, even that 25% of 25% saying that, that they believe in Jesus, they're a Christian, that's, that's half, roughly half um, the national average. So we're living in a culture uh, here that uh, has vastly different views of the world, of humanity, of people, of family, of the Bible, of all these things than we do. How do we, how do we live in a culture like that? How do we view people like that? How do we view our neighbors who think differently, or our coworkers, or our professors, or, uh, or the classes that we're taking, the university this year? How do we view them? And, um, well, this question... How do you live in a, in a culture that's hostile to your kind of religious belief was a very big question in Jesus' day. Um, uh, the Jews, God's people, were living under the subjugation of uh, the Roman Empire, this va- you know, the biggest empire that the world has ever seen, very pagan, uh, very different uh, views of God and humanity than the Jews had. And they were this little minority people planted right in the, in the midst of this vast empire. And uh, a big question for the Jews was, how do we view these, these dirty pagans that we're <laughs> living next to? That was, the, that was the question for them. And you'll see in this passage um, that I just read, verse 19, it says that the scribes and, the, and the, uh, uh, the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived uh, that he had told this parable. Jesus had just told a parable against the religious leaders, and they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said. Now we know from Matthew that this group of spies that they sent in was made up of two people who usually, two groups of people who were never friends with each other, the Pharisees and the Herodians. And the Pharisees uh, were hoping that there was going to be a Messiah who was going to come liberate them from uh, the Roman the Roman Empire. They had a view of the culture around them that they were on the defensive, and they were looking for uh, their the enemies there their, in the culture around them to be defeated and to be freed from them. And on the other hand, the Herodians, who get their name from Herod uh, Herod the Great, who actually built the temple that uh, that in Jerusalem in Jesus' day or he right around the time Jesus was born. Uh, they they associated themselves with Roman who was a, uh, or Herod who was a Roman king, and so on the one hand the Pharisees are in a defensiveness against the culture around them, and the Herodians uh, are, want to associate with the culture around them. They want to accommodate and and be on the same side of the Romans that are around them, and uh, these two stances, these two ways of using. Viewing the culture around them are exactly the two ways that Christians in our day interact with the culture around, around us. Typically, we are either in a defensive mode against the culture around us, we are on the defense, we're afraid of the culture around us, or we're accommodating, we're trying so desperately to be relevant to the culture around us. We want to be like the culture around us. And what happens in this passage is, uh, is this, these two groups come together, usually very different. They come together and they ask Jesus this question in verse 22. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Should we cooperate 
with the culture around us. And the Pharisees, they would say, absolutely not. No true Messiah would be on the side of the Romans and paying this tax to the Romans. And the Herodians would say, if Jesus says no, we'll take him, we'll take him to the king. We'll have him executed as an insurrectionist. And what we have here, Jesus gives this, uh, this response. It's 11 words in Greek that are probably the most nuanced and the most profound statement that everyone's ever said on the relationship between God's people, the religious groups, and a surrounding culture. What's the relationship between them? And he says this line, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And everyone's amazed. He silenced them. And not only did he silence them, though, he's given us a clue. He's given us a paradigm for us to use as a church. How do we as Christians live in our culture? And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at these three options. How do we interact with the culture? Are we in defense mode against the culture? Are we trying to be relevant to the culture? Or are we doing a third option, which Jesus provides here, which I want to call faithful presence? Are we being faithfully present in our culture? And, uh, and we'll look at each three of these, obviously. I think the first two uh, fall short of what Jesus is calling us to, and so hopefully he's calling us to a church of faithful presence. And, you know, I should say that this language that I'm getting of faithful presence and these other words uh, comes from James, uh, uh, James Davison Hunter, who he's a sociologist at the University of Virginia, who wrote a book called To Change the World on, on Christianity in the late modern world, how do we be Christians in a, in a pluralistic society like we're living in? So I'm, I'm drawing from him throughout this sermon. So uh, three things, three options, being defensive against the culture, trying to be relevant to the culture, and uh, the third option, which Jesus calls us to, of being faithfully present in the culture. So first, defensive against. So this is the stance of the Pharisees. And uh, the Pharisees' kind of defensive stance against the, the Roman culture around them shows itself in two ways, in their politics and in their purity, in their politics and their purity. First of all, politics. The Pharisees um, were looking for a Messiah who was going to come and provide a political solution to their cultural problem. So they, they wanted to believe in God. They wanted to worship God. They wanted to, uh, they wanted to be God's people. And uh, the Romans were... Create this, the culture of the Romans, the government of the Romans, the, the lifestyle of the Romans were all a threat to the lifestyle that they wanted to live. And so what they wanted was a Messiah who was going to come and assume political power and then impose the kingdom of God on their enemies, right? And, you know, the fact is that that's a very similar idea that many Christians in our culture have right now. Um, especially over the last 30 years, as, as uh, evangelicals especially have looked at our culture and are saying, you know, our culture is more and more moving away from our Christian values and our, uh, uh, our, our views of family. And um, we are going to lose this culture unless we get into a position of political power where we can begin to, to shape how the, you know, the values of the culture and, and uh, we, if we can be in the position of leadership. And let me read to you, for example, this is from the National Association of Evangelicals. Uh, they, say, they say this, Evangelical Christians in America face a historic opportunity. We make up fully one quarter of all voters in the most powerful nation in history. You hear the language of power there? 
We are a quarter of the most powerful nation in history. We have an opportunity to get power. You hear that? And then it says this. Never before has God given American evangelicals such an awesome opportunity to shape public policy in ways that could contribute to the well-being of the entire world. Disengagement is not an option. We must seek God's face for biblical faithfulness and abundant wisdom to rise to this unique challenge. Look at the size of the hopes attached to assuming political power. They say we could bring about the well-being of the entire world if we could get into a position of political power. This is very similar to the ideas of the Pharisees. Is if we can just get in political power, we can impose our ideas on the culture and we will transform the culture and we'll make it how we want it to be. And actually, this has been so powerful that in, uh, that in much of our culture, the, uh, being a Christian, being an evangelical has actually been identified with being a Republican. I, I mean, uh, ma- many people think that. I mean, that, that's mind-blowing, but actually, even in many churches, the litmus test of whether you are really a follower of Jesus and that you really believe the Bible are your political views. And actually, the fact is that a lot of non-Christians think that also. A lot of non-Christians think that if I'm going to become a Christian, what that means is I'm becoming a Republican. Now, interestingly, in the last decade, even though that's happened over the last 30 years, in the last decade, there's been kind of a shift happening among young evangelicals, a lot, you know, my age, who look at the Gospels and they say, you know, Jesus' priorities in the Gospel doesn't seem to be mainly about family values and things like that. It's, his priorities are towards the poor and to the, uh, the, the weak, the, uh, the, uh, the powerless in society. And Jesus is trying to break down socioeconomic barriers. And so for many of them, they're now going the other way and saying, listen, if you're really a Christian, you're going to be advocating for the poor and for the least. And you're going to be identifying yourself with the liberal agenda in our society. And so if you're really a Christian... You're going to be seeking political, get into a place of political power where you can uh, uh, be shaping our culture uh, to care for the poor. And what you see in both of these positions, whether it's the Christian right or the Christian left, is they both say that our hope in this culture, the way that we can transform culture, the way we can stand against the forces that are pushing against our values, is to assume political power. And, uh, you know, Jesus, in his ministry, right here in this, in this passage, is refusing that strategy for cultural change. Jesus was not a revolutionary. He did not try to get political power and to impose uh, his vision of the kingdom of God on other people. He didn't do that. Now, some of you might be saying, okay, what are you saying? We shouldn't be involved. Christians, we should, shouldn't be involved in politics? Or Absolutely not. I'm not saying that at all. Um, but what I am saying is that if we think that we can uh, defend ourselves from our culture by getting political power, I think we're wrong. And I, actually, I put a quote for you from James Hunter um, uh, in, on page three of your bulletin. Uh, this is what he says. What the state cannot do is provide fully satisfying solutions to the problem of values in our society. There are no comprehensive political solutions to the deterioration of family values, the desire for equity, or the challenge of achieving consensus and solidarity in a cultural context of fragmentation and polarization. I know that's a mouthful, sorry. Uh, it, is true, it is true that laws are not neutral. They do reflect values, but laws 
cannot generate values or instill values or settle the conflict over values. The belief that the state could help us care more for the poor and the elderly, slow the disintegration of traditional values, generate respect among different groups, or create civic pride is illusory. It imputes far too much capacity to the state in the political process. And so uh, Jesus did not take on the Roman Empire and the culture that was opposed to everything that the Bible taught by assuming a position of political power. He did it by making disciples. And that should be shaping our view of, of how we interact with our culture. How do we hope to transform a culture? It's not by getting in a position of power, but it's by making disciples. So first of all, the Pharisees, the way that they, uh, their stance of, of standing against their culture was first to pursue pursue political power, but secondly, their pursuit of purity. And uh, let me tell you, let me explain a little more about the the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a religious group who um, their identity was most closely tied to God's law, the Torah. Even more than the temple, the Torah, and actually a whole body of religious uh, kind of rules and uh, lifestyles that, that, that Jewish tradition had added to the Torah, their whole life was surrounded around these practices. And what they would do is they'd use these, uh, these practices as kind of merit badges that they'd wear around, that, you know, they fast and they tithe and they, they keep the Sabbath and they don't eat unclean foods and they're circumcised. And all these things were badges to show that they're different than the, than the dirty pagans. And they're trying to isolate themselves and to make a clear distinction, we are not like them. And uh, so they used their good deeds as a reminder that they are distinct from the culture around them. This is how they protected themselves from the the culture that was trying to impose on them. And of course, we can take on that same same mentality as Christians, right? Where we uh, are are trying to uh, create a culture, a subculture, that is purified from the, the culture around us that, that is hostile to who God is. And, and so we only hang out with Christian people. We have Christ, you know, Christian t-shirts, and, uh, and we talk in Christian language that no one else really understands what we're talking about. And even we can talk very condescendingly of people who don't believe like we do. And we talk condescendingly about the, uh, the culture that's around us. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to create a little subculture that is pure from the defilement of the dirty world around us. That's exactly what, uh, what the Pharisees were trying to do. And so on the one hand, they're trying to be political to try to impose their beliefs, but they're also trying to be pure to isolate themselves uh, from, from the culture around them. And look at what Jesus does. Jesus does something very clever here. So the Pharisees come and they ask them this question, so should we pay taxes to Caesar? Should we be going along with the Roman program? And, uh, and it says in verse 23 that he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Now, a denarius was a day's wage uh, in, in the Roman Empire, and a denarius was a coin that had actually been made from Caesar's wealth. It was actually Caesar's coin. This was his wealth that he had distributed into the Roman Empire. And on the coin, there was uh, the face of Caesar with an inscription that said this, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, Augustus. So so Jesus asked these Pharisees who are keeping themselves pure from the Romans, he's like, hey, you know that coin you have in your pocket? 
that has the blasphemous uh, inscription on it and belongs to Caesar that you're carrying around in your pocket and you buy your food with? Can, why don't you pull that out so we can have a look at it? And he's immediately showing them that if you think that you can disentangle yourself from the culture that's surrounding you, you're, uh, you're deluding yourself. It's absolutely impossible. You can't live in a subculture. And God doesn't want you to. God doesn't want you to live in a purified culture that doesn't interact with the culture around you. He doesn't want you to. You know, there's a, a, a famous section in the book of Jeremiah where uh, in Jeremiah's day, they were living in a very similar context where uh, the, the Jews had been taken in cap, into captivity in, uh, by the Babylon, uh, Babylonians in Babylon. And there were these false prophets who were saying, listen, God hates the Babylonians. It's, this is only going to be a couple years. Just keep yourselves pure during, for a couple years, and God is going to come smite your enemies. And, and just hold on until he does that. And Jeremiah comes and says, listen, sorry, it's not going to be two years. It's going to be 70 years. And I, I don't want you to isolate yourself. I want you to go into that city, into that dirty pagan city that you think is, is so terrible. And I want you to have families there. I want you to plant vineyards. I want you to start businesses. I want you to pray for that city. And I want you to seek the welfare of that city. I want you to interact and bless and be doing businesses and pray for that city. Because, and I'll bless the city. And because in its welfare is your welfare. And when it's blessed, you will be blessed. I don't want you to isolate yourself. I want you to be in the culture. And so these two strategies that the Pharisees are taking of political power and purity, Jesus rejects both of them. That's not what he's calling us to. Okay? Now, okay, so we're not, we're not on the defensive against our culture. So there's another, another error we can make in the opposite direction that we can seek to accommodate, to, to be relevant to our culture. We want to be like our culture. And so that's our, our second option. And this is, the, uh, this is the strategy of the Herodians. Herodians look at the big Roman Empire and they say, look it, we're just some Jews. You know, this tiny group of religious people in, this, in the biggest empire the world has ever seen that has tremendous amount of power and cultural influence. We, you know, we have no chance to stand against them. We got to join him. We got to join forces. So we got this Roman king. He built us a temple. Let's be on his side. Let's join forces with him. And Christians also, in the other direction, go with this option and say, let's accommodate to our culture. You know, a century ago, this was uh, the big move that in, in, uh, in both in Europe and in the American church, Christians took. They said, you know, you look at the Bible. There's all the miracles, and there's Jesus rising from the dead, and you know Jesus dying on the cross 2,000 years ago, and his blood washes my sins 2,000 years later. And, and then he rose from the dead, and then this book is the inspired word of God. And Christians were saying, listen, if we keep believing that, modern man, is, is, we're going to lose any cultural power with modern man. We need to accommodate and transform what we believe to... Uh, so that we can speak to our culture, so that we can, you know, work with our culture. Or look at how big, you know, the modern ideology is. We, we can't stand against it. We have no chance, right? And so they accommodated. And what we've seen over the last century is that um, that uh, accommodation uh, of the liberal church, the, the liberal church has, is in steep decline. People are leaving the church because they say, you know what? The church isn't saying anything different than the world. 
Why am I giving up my Sunday morning if I'm not hearing anything else in the world? There's nothing different. And uh, the church has lost its distinctive voice. It has tried so hard to be like the world that it's nothing different than the world. And, uh, you know, actually this has happened more recently. Uh, in, in the 80s, there was a, a survey, the Barna Group, which is a Christian group that does surveys on, on cultural surveys and things, on statistics. And they asked uh, people who aren't Christians, why don't you go to church? And overwhelmingly, people said, well, you know, the sermons, they don't really apply to my life. Uh, I don't connect with them. The music, I like the music on the radio more than church, so I don't really like the music. And so this began a whole new movement where all kinds of churches said, well, we need to have sermons about, you know, that, uh, the things that people want to hear about, about family, you know, about how to have a, five steps to a better family, etc. And, uh, and then we need to have hit music. And uh, that began the seeker movement, which is, formed huge churches, which oftentimes are, are doing many good things. I don't, I don't mean to, uh, to bash on the seeker movement, but what they found is that they brought tons of people into the church, and yet the people are, are rarely growing. Recently, new statistics find that people are not growing in these churches because there's no distinctive voice. We've tried so hard to accommodate to the world that we have no, nothing new to tell them. And it's, it's very interesting, actually, 10 years later, after Barna did his study, uh, a guy named Tom Rayner did another study. And he said, you know, Barna was asking the wrong people uh, for his survey. He shouldn't have been asking people who don't go to church why they don't go to church. He should have been asking people who didn't go to church and now do go to church and actually have been going to church for at least three years and have had a radical life change and ask them, what was it about the church that drew you. Overwhelmingly, they said, uh, over 90% said that the preaching was from the Bible. (laughs) Number two was that the church had distinct doctrinal beliefs, (laughs) which was shocking to me, that a church really believed something was attracted to them. And number three, that the church loved people, welcomed them when they came and they felt loved there. Overwhelmingly, it wasn't that the church accommodated to them. It was that the church was distinctive, was offering them something new is what drew them and what transformed their life. And, you know, just actually, music was at the bottom of the list. Only 11% of people said it was the music which had a really transformative effect in their life, uh, which uh, is surprising. And, um, and so what that means is that... Wow, I'm lost here. Hold on a second. Um, the... Uh, is that the power of the church is not being in, rele- be- in being relevant to the culture, but in the church's distinctiveness, in challenging the world to a new definition of what it means to be human. And you see that challenge here in Jesus. Uh, look again at, at verse 22. They say to him, it's not lawful. Uh, is it, they ask him this question. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And what they say is, well, they say, well, Caesar's likeness, inscription is on there. Caesar's face is on there. He says, well, give to Caesar the things that have Caesar's inscription on there. And give to God the things that have God's inscription on them. And what has God's inscription on it? Well, everything, first of all. God made everything. His mark is on everything. But especially people. 
So he's saying, listen, the coin, actually it's Caesar's coin. That's his silver. So you give to him what's his. But, you know, the coin has Caesar's image on it. But Caesar himself has God's image on it. Caesar belongs to God. Uh, All the people in the Roman Empire belong to God. Everything we do belongs to God. And so in the midst of saying, listen, uh, God has put you in this culture to live in the midst of it. He's also giving us a radical change, a challenge to say that everything belongs to God and everything about our lives, whether our business, our family, our work, our recreation, um, everything we do, God has given to uh, to us to give as an offering back to him. And it's a radical uh, challenge to culture of what is the ultimate purpose of culture. Why, Why does culture exist? Why do we work? Why do we have families? Why do we be artistic? Why do we go to school? And uh, there's, a, there's a great quote by Abraham Kuyper. Abraham Kuyper was a Christian who was the prime minister in the Netherlands in the beginning of the 20th century. And he says this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Every square inch of the creation, Jesus says, This is mine. And uh, so it's our culture, it's, it's our calling to live in the culture to not separate from it, but also to offer the culture back to God. It's what Jesus says to be in the world and not of the world. Okay, And so that's the challenge that I think he's calling us to in this passage. And I know I've, I've said a lot, but let me, uh, let me give this third option. Jesus says we're not in defense mode against the culture. We're not trying to be relevant to the culture. We're trying to be faithfully present in the culture. And uh, so faithful presence looks like being simul- is a simultaneous combination of identifying with the culture and separating from it. We're simultaneously identifying with the culture and separating. What do I mean by that? Okay, so first, identifying with the culture. How do we identify? You know, if, if Whatcom County, Bellingham is, the vast majority thinks we're foolish for believing in the Bible, how do we... How do we embrace them? How do we identify with them? Well, one, well a couple things. First of all, we see that, that people are made in the image of God. You know, God has sprinkled his grace on all people, whether they love him or not. It's called common grace. And people have gifts. You know, I have neighbors who have great families. They're, they're good parents. They work hard. They, their yards look nicer than mine uh, does. Uh, and uh, I have a lot I could learn from them. And that's all God's grace to them. That's God's work in their life. I have a tremendous amount to celebrate about them. And that's already God working them. And I should see those things. And, and, and that's a place that I can identify them where God is already at work in their life. And so first, uh, identifying with a culture is seeing the image of God, seeing common grace in our culture. But also, it's being present in the culture. You know, we live in different neighborhoods. You know, Bellingham has all kinds of neighborhood associations. You have neighbors that, that live around you. A lot of people that care about the neighborhood. Do you know your neighbors? Um, understanding that my spiritual life is not something that I'm just doing at church or in home group, but, that, you know, whatever, wherever I'm working or whatever class I'm in, whatever person God has put me in front of, that's where God is at work in my life. And so to build those relationships, having people over to our house for dinner, that, you know, a new neighbor that comes over to our house, just being present and knowing them and listening to them and understanding them. And uh, so being present, that we don't want to isolate ourselves from the culture, but we want to be active. We want to be active in our neighborhoods, active in relationships, active in work, and understanding that all of this is our spiritual life. So we're on the one hand identifying with a culture, on the other hand, 
we're separating from our culture. I mean, we are called, our, our calling is to call Bellingham and Whatcom County to repentance. And to say, turn from the false gods of worshiping Mount Baker or, you know, worshiping recreation or worshiping health and, uh, or eating organic. Good, those are good things. But they're not ultimate things. And, uh, and they will fail you if they are the center of your life. Turn to the living God who made you, who is your creator. It's a challenge to them. And, um, and you know, the, of, course, of course, we're not just going to tolerate everyone and agree with everyone. The world needs changing. So we need to challenge the world. And the big challenge that we're saying to the world is to turn to the living God, repent and turn from your sins and turn to him. And so simultaneously, we're trying to identify with the culture and to separate from it. But, you know, I should say one thing. Even though we're calling the culture to repent, even in that, we're identifying with them because we need to repent. We know that we have idols in our hearts. And so if, if, if they worship recreation or, or Mount Baker or their job, we know that we have a ten- tendency or temptation to do that. So we can identify that with them that we need to be called to repentance. How do we be this kind of people that are simultaneously identifying with the culture here and separating from it and challenging it? Well, um, you know, how do we become, let me say it again, say this another way. How do we become the kind of people where when people meet us, they feel like we really appreciate who they are? We value who they are. We see uh, their gifts. Um, uh, We're interested in their lives. They feel invited by us. And yet, we f- they feel very challenged by us as well, uh, of why they're living their life. What is the purpose of their life? You know, that's what happens for many people who become Christians. That is their experience of Christians, is they said, I felt loved and challenged by them at the same time. How do we be that kind of people? Of course, it's the gospel, right? Because what's at the heart of the gospel? It's God simultaneously identifying with us and separating from us. It's Jesus' faithful presence in our lives, right? Because Jesus comes and he's sinless. He's the perfect man. He, he's the God. He's the creator who's come to us, and yet he's one of us. He's a man. He lives among us, right? He's Emmanuel, God with us. He's simultaneously a challenge and an identification with us. And what's the cross? The cross is Jesus bearing our sin, Going in our place, it's Jesus bearing uh, all the worst injustice the world has ever seen falling on him. He's identifying with us in our sin, and yet the cross is also God's statement of this is what he thinks about sin. It's the wrath of God being poured on Jesus, showing this is what God thinks of sin. It's crucifixion. And so the cross, simultaneously, God is challenging us and loving us at the same time. And so it's when we're captured by the gospel, it's when we're captured by Jesus of his faithful presence in our life, we become people who go into this culture and we're not defending against it, we're not living in fear against it, and we're not just accommodating and being trying to be relevant or trying to be cool or trying to be like everyone, uh, everyone else or our neighbors or our professor. We're being faithfully present, loving our neighbors and calling them to repentance. And uh, I think that's God's calling for our church. That's the future for our church, is that we would be known as a kind of people that are both identifying with and separating from uh, the culture we live in. Let's pray together. Our Lord, what a challenge, what a calling. And we thank you, though, that this is our calling. This is what we want. Though uh, 
we're not sure that we can uh, be who you've called us to be. Um, we see in your word that we don't want to be people living in fear and isolating ourselves from our neighbors. And yet we're also people that we don't want to just accommodate and be, uh, be like our neighbors and be like the culture. We want to be a counterculture. We want to be both these things. It's only by your spirit that you would make us as a community into that. So we ask for your grace to lead us, to form us, to form our hearts, shape our minds and our relationships, uh, that we would be faithfully present to our neighbors and in our work, uh, on the campus, and uh, in our families, and, uh, and in this neighborhood. We ask this in Jesus' name.